They don't have to be under the law of Moses uh, and follow after that. There's also a, tra a, a transition here from Judaism to Christianity, and uh, they, aren't, they aren't the exact same thing in the fact that uh, Judaism is more uh, Old Testament practice and uh, the, the worship in the temple and that sort of thing to uh, we're going now from uh, that type of a thing, uh, the temple worship, to churches, local New Testament churches. And so there's a transitional time of that uh, taking place. There's also transition from the idea of being under the law to being under grace, and Paul addresses that. We also go from a transition of Old Testament scripture to New Testament epistles being written. And um, again, there were some uh, differences, obviously, between them. That's why we have what we've referred to as the Old Testament in our Bible and then the New Testament in our Bible, uh, because the, the word testament is a New Testament word for, uh, for uh, the idea of a uh, covenant that was made. Um, and Hebrews talks about that. And so the old uh, covenant that God had made with Abraham and Israel and Jacob uh, and the Israelites themselves, uh, it was imperfect. And Jesus even speaks of that. He said if the, if the old covenant had been perfect, there would not have been a need for a new one. But it was imperfect in that the blood of calves and goats could never bring salvation to man. Um, it was going to take the sacrifice of a perfect, sinless man, which would be the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on Calvary, he established in his death, uh, the shedding of his blood, his resurrection, was the establishment or the, uh, the beginning of a new and a perfect covenant. And the, um, so there's this transitional idea of uh, the, the temple worship, the law, being under the law, to this idea of a New Testament church and having liberty and being under grace. We're under a New Testament or a new covenant. And that's why... If you ever wondered how we got the divisions Old Testament and New Testament, what those referred to, they were referring to uh, the promises, or I, I hate to use the word promises because covenants were much stronger than, than promises. We think of a promise as something that we say and we have the best intention, as best as I can, I'll follow through with that. A covenant, you didn't break unless you were willing to die for breaking it. Uh, it was a very, very strong thing. Uh, very, it was legally binding. In fact, even today, there are some states in the United States that if you enter into what they call a covenant marriage, it cannot be annulled and you cannot get a divorce for it because it's uh, established as a legally binding thing that cannot be dissolved. Um, there's a few states that still recognize that, uh, even here in the United States. So uh, there's a, it's a transitional book. Uh, because of that, there were some things that took place in Acts that were brought about for the purpose of establishing this, these transitions. Um, the Holy Spirit of God is given to them. Uh, Jesus, uh, let, let's, I'm going to back up just a little bit here. Uh, but it, it's going to cover from the ascension of Christ as we see in chapter 1. And if you'll go down to verse number 8, let's look in chapter 1, verse number 8 for a minute. Uh, and the Bible says, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And really, chapter 1 is a, a high-level nutshell outline, if you will, of the book of Acts. Uh, there are three basic divisions of the book. One of them deals with uh, the witness to Jerusalem. The second section deals with the witness to Judea and Samaria. And then the last section, the final section, deals with their witness to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it very easily divides in, and it's very interesting that verse 8 
uh, is a kind of a launching pad to understanding how the book is laid out and how it's uh, compiled together. And uh, it begins with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his promise to the disciples. Uh, You've got to keep in mind, when, when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, he was with his disciples for 40 days. And the Bible says that there were many who saw him. There were eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ. So uh, even historically there is a proof of the risen Christ. Uh, there's so many different proofs that are given in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke refers to Old Testament scriptures as proof that Christ is the Messiah, that he is the risen Christ. Uh, and the emphasis in the book of Acts is about his resurrection specifically, that he is the risen Christ, not just crucified, but he is risen. And uh, that is kind of the main, every message you read is talking about the importance of, yes, he died, but he rose, and that's the important thing. And he, every message you'll find in here preached by these guys, that's the emphasis of their preaching. So Luke uses Old Testament scripture that points to uh, Messiah being cut off and being uh, raised again. Uh, he also uses um, the obvious works of the Holy Spirit's empowering of the disciples or the apostles. And we had what were called, and we studied this a few months ago when we were dealing with the Word of Faith movement, there were um, what we call the sign gifts or the apostolic gifts that were given to the apostles exclusively. The reason for that is for one generation, they're making a major transition, uh, especially the Jewish people. And these are things that validate these changes and these messages. Uh, they're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And um, so they have the, the working of the Holy Spirit is strongly illustrated and, and accounted for. Luke uh, deals with that. Uh, there's also the uh, martyrdom of some of the leaders, the apostles, and even some of the, uh, at least one of the deacons that we know of that are mentioned in the book of Acts. There is the martyrdom of these fellows that were willing to die, not just die, but die a suffering in a, in a, uh, a time of being uh, just tortured, literally, for the fact that they would not deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's any single truth that we can look at in Scripture and say, we believe that the resurrection happened, not only is there historical record of it, not only is there Old Testament prophecy of it, but there are men who were willing to go to their deaths, and I'm talking about horrible deaths, rather than refute the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was a lie, if their eyewitness seeing of the Lord Jesus Christ in his risen body was a lie, I don't know of a man alive that would go to his death that way, holding to that kind of a lie. There had to be some truth to it. There had to be something that these men said, I will believe this till the day I die, and there's nothing you can do to change my mind on it. And that is the fact that they had truly seen the risen Christ. And so Luke lays a very strong case uh, in the book of Acts to uh, show to the, the Jewish people especially, uh, but also to the Gentiles, that Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just a man. He was the Son of God who came as the sacrifice for man's sin. And um, the, the power of the messages that are given. If you want to see a, a wonderful illustration of a presentation of a gospel message, Read some of these messages that Peter preached and that Paul preached in the book of Acts. They're very strong messages. Even the one that Stephen preached was a fantastic message of the gospel. Very very concisely done and straight to the point. 
Um, and if you say, well, I just don't know how to tell somebody how to be saved, read the book of Acts. There's so many illustrations of it in here. And uh, it's a great, great book that helps us to understand some of these things. And then uh, Luke also uses uh, the rapid spread. He, he speaks about the rapid spread uh, of Christianity in that first generation, that first century. That's amazing when you think about it. Here's a group of uh, 12 apostles. Uh, most of them were poorly educated, and they were fishermen or had some kind of a, a menial job uh, prior to the time that Christ called them. There were a handful of ragtag followers of, of Christ that had been scattered because of some persecution. And yet when the Holy Spirit came 10 days after the, resur- or the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and, and empowered them and emboldened them, that little ragtag handful of people turned the world upside down with their doctrine. They had turned Jerusalem uh, upside down, certainly with their, their, their doctrine, and, and had uh, convinced many of it. But when we see the working of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very first time Peter got up to preach after the Holy Spirit uh, came on them at Pentecost, 3,000 people trusted Christ. They came to trust Him as Savior. He preached His second message, and thousands more trusted Him. Could you imagine preaching one message and thousands of people coming to know Christ as their Savior? Uh, This is not the work of men uh, who were well-educated and had studied the psychology and the manipulation of men's minds. These were simple men who had a simple truth of a risen Savior that went out and said, here's what Jesus did for you. And empowered and strengthened uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, thousands and thousands of people uh, trust Christ by putting their faith in Him and were added to the church because uh, of the working of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Luke uses those illustrations also as a validating uh, uh, set of circumstances, if you will, uh, of this transitional time that now we're establishing these churches, these local churches in these cities. Uh, The church at Jerusalem is kind of the key church in the first part of Acts up until chapter 13. Uh, Peter is kind of the main apostle. There were a couple other apostles there that were uh, assisting him in the church at Jerusalem. Uh, within just a, a few services, they are a few preaching times, there were at least 7,000 that we know of that were saved uh, and added to the church. Um, Brother Waymire, a good friend of mine, many of you know him, uh, is starting a new church here. Uh, and they've been meeting now, I guess, five or six weeks, I think it is. And, uh, in fact, I took some chairs over to him yesterday to help him out and, and uh, been praying with him about this and excited for him. And he, call, he called me Friday night, I think it was, and said, Brother Greg, we had 13 last Sunday night. And I was, I was excited for that because, boy, I'll tell you, for a new church plant in a town like this, you think, boy, that's, that's amazing, 13 people in just a few weeks. And, um, and then, uh, but then I got to thinking in the book of Acts, and you think, boy, could you just imagine uh, getting up to preach your first service? You're planting a church, and 3,000 people trust Christ as their Savior. And uh, then uh, the next week comes, or maybe a few weeks later, they meet again and they preach again, and another 4,000 trust Christ at that one. And next thing you know, you got over 7,000 people in your church that you're trying to, to, to minister to and meet the needs of. And so these apostles were working together to help with that. But it was to where they were running from house to house so much, and they were not able to give themselves to uh, the doctrine and to the Word and to, and to prayer. And so they decided to come up with deacons. And uh, deacons were to be spirit-filled men that were able to assist uh, the apostles that were pastoring that church in Jerusalem 
uh, with the day-to-day ministration of the ministry and uh, free the apostles up to be able to study and to spend time in prayer and in labor and doctrine. Um, and, uh, and that was the purpose of uh, the deacons that were in the book of Acts. I think we've, uh, in days that we live in now, deacons uh, don't always serve that for particular purpose. Uh, there's some other things we use them for today because of some legal things in our society. We have to have a board and we have to have people that can legally sign things and they serve in that capacity as well. Uh, so deacons have kind of had some responsibilities added to them over the years. Um, but, um, but suffice to say, the book of Acts talks about that. So uh, the first 11 and 12 chapters deals with this church at Jerusalem. Uh, Peter's kind of the main figure of the pastoring of that, the elder of that church. And, um, but then we get to chapter 13. In chapter 13, we begin to see a transition. It's not sudden, but it's a, a marked and a significant change from the city of Jerusalem being the central point of Christianity to uh, the city of Antioch. Antioch uh, in Syria uh, is now becoming uh, more and more the central hub, if you will, of where Christianity is kind of bubbling out of. Uh, In fact, all three of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys were begun from Antioch. Um, By the way, uh, if you go back and study manuscript uh, history of our King James Bibles, you'll find that the manuscripts that we get our King James translation from uh, centered from those that were found near Antioch. Um, the ones that are from every other version of Scripture uh, came from uh, some texts that were corrupted, a lot of them that were later on compiled from manuscripts and things that they had found near Alexandria, Egypt, which was kind of the central point of paganism and the occult and philosophy, men's philosophy. Uh, There was the Vaticanus that was found uh, in the Vatican. Uh, There was the Sinaiticus uh, that was found at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, in a monastery, and it was in the fire pit. It was such an inferior translation or uh, uh, scribing of the Scriptures that they had actually used it as kindling for their fire And uh, these are the translations that all these new versions have come from. Uh, Westcott and Hort got together a number of years ago and said, hey, we think these are a better group of manuscripts to pull from. And uh, I would much rather trust my manuscripts that came from the central hotbed of Christianity in that first century. And uh, that's the ones that we do trust. We believe those are the most um, uh, preserved, uh, without error, manuscripts that are out there. Um, and uh, there's well over 5,000 of them uh, that are compiled, and then there's another two or 3,000 that seem to uh, agree with those as well. And uh, we'll teach on that one of these days soon again. I, I know I, about every one or two years we do a, a sermon on why we hold to the King James Bible. It is important to us. It's vitally important to us, and uh, it does make a difference. I know a lot of people say, well, it doesn't matter as long as you have a Bible. It, it really does. It, it determines your doctrine. And uh, the other versions of Scripture have errors with them that cause your doctrine to change. And uh, our doctrine must remain pure. So, uh, so you know, all of this stuff is taking place. There's a transition in chapter 13. Through the end of the book, you'll see more and more Antioch is becoming more and more prominent in the area of being the central focus of uh, Christianity. Jerusalem is beginning to decline in that area, not because the church is lacking, um, but because there is more and more persecution coming into that area. In fact, um, the, at the end of Paul's ministry, after his third missionary journey, he 
was going to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to, to Jerusalem because of the decline. And he wanted to try to stir up the hearts of the believers and try to uh, do some things to help. He was, uh, he was advised not to go. And as a result, he got to Jerusalem and he stirred up a lot of Jews against him. And they were creating a ruckus and the Roman army had to come and, and save him from the crowd because they were wanting to kill him. And uh, that began uh, a chain of events that led to his eventual Roman uh, imprisonment and captivity uh, that eventually led to his martyrdom. And uh, so, uh, so again, there's that transition right around chapter 13 of the book. So if you study the book of Acts, you'll know that the first part's going to be primarily about Jerusalem and that work. Uh, you'll see some other things in there, maybe up through chapter 12 even. But around 13, you're going to start seeing a change and a difference there. And then you'll see more and more of the Antioch being the, uh, the central point. There are three basic divisions of the book, I think, that are fairly clearly outlined. From chapter 1 to chapter 8, uh, we find them primarily uh, evangelizing and witnessing in Jerusalem itself. And you've got to keep in mind, the early church, uh, they were excited. I mean, they'd just seen Christ ascend to heaven. they just heard Him say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And they're excited about this. They have seen Pentecost. They've seen the people saved. And they're, they're uh, seeing God work and the Holy Spirit's doing some major things in the church. And, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a revival, but I think if you've been in that early church, I don't think there's been a revival on the earth that's ever been as good, great as that one. And, uh, the, I mean, they're excited. There's joy. There's fellowship. There's, there's uh, closeness. I mean, we think our little fellowship in the hall downstairs on Sundays is a great thing, and it is. But, boy, their fellowship, the Bible said they were day-to-day in, in, from house to house breaking bread and in fellowship. And, uh, I mean, these people were close. There was joy. And it lasted for just a, a handful of years before uh, we began to start seeing some troubles creep in, even in the early church. So rest assured, if you say, well, I just can't find a church that doesn't have problems. Well, neither did the early church. The church in Jerusalem had problems. I mean, you had people like Ananias and Sapphira come. I mean, tell me about having problems. They, they had two people that the Holy Spirit just struck them dead right there. Uh, there were some problems. There was some persecution coming their way. Saul was finding Christians and imprisoning them, beating them, torturing them, even was consenting to the death when Stephen was stoned. And so there were problems in the church. And uh, while they went through about eight or ten years, I would say, twelve years maybe, of really good and, and kind of being on the mountaintop, after that uh, there, there began to be some tribulation. Some of it internal, problems in the church, false teaching and things that people were, were starting to hold to. But even outside the church, there were the persecution that came, all the different things that were happening. And um, so we see a lot of these things beginning to happen in the early church. And it needs to, it serves a purpose. The, the persecution came because the disciples and, and the people that had gotten saved and that were part of that church were so enthralled with, well, we love our church, we love what's going on here, we love Peter and, and the preaching, and yet they were staying right there. And they were not accomplishing the work God had for them to do. So the persecution, while it was not a pleasant thing, served a purpose. It scattered the Christians. Uh, they went into all parts of the world. And when they went to all parts of the world, they kept preaching and praying and starting churches and telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the persecution served as a, as a, a help, really, uh, to get the, the church uh, to go out into the world. 
And by the way, I hope it doesn't take that in our generation for us to go into the world and teach people the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would hate to have to go through the persecution that it would take to do that. It would be much better if we would do it willingly and say, Lord, I just want to be obedient in this area. Um, the second section of the book is chapter 8 through chapter 12. This is when they primarily focus on witnessing in the Judea and the Samarian areas, the surrounding areas uh, immediately outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Philip goes to Samaria and uh, preaches. Now, you've got to remember, the, the Samaritans were were half-breeds. They were despised by the Jews. They hated them. And here Philip goes, and he starts to preach to them. And you can imagine what some of these Jewish people are thinking. You know, here we are taking the gospel to those people. I mean, we hate these people. And uh, so Peter and John, they get together, and they they give uh, approval, and not, not because Philip needed the approval. He, they gave approval to try to calm the Jewish people down and say, listen, this gospel is for everybody. And so they give some approval about this. Uh, look with me in chapter 11, in verse number 1. Saul is, of course, uh, active during this time period, still breathing out threatenings and slaughter against uh, the Gentiles. And um, let's look, um, oh, let's see here. Look in chapter 11 in verse number 1. Uh, we find uh, the apostles and brethren were, that were in Judea heard the Gentiles that had also received the Word of God. And so uh, it's very important that the Jews realized that the Word of God could be received by the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And this is what Peter and John meet together on. Peter's given the illustration here. If you look down to verse number um, 5, it says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descend as it had been a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. Uh, uh, to me. Upon the which, when I had fastened my eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common nor unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately, so as soon as this lesson was taught... Immediately there were three men already come to the house, unto the house where I was uh, sent from, uh, where I was sent from Caesarea unto me, and uh, the Spirit bade me uh, go with them, uh, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house, and he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, "Send me to Joppa, and uh, send uh, said unto him, send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words." whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And so, for as much, he says in verse 17, for as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? And so Peter learns a valuable lesson here in chapter 11. Uh, and we see this, again, transition from Jews only to Jews and Gentiles. And so that's uh, found as they spread out into Judea and into Samaria. Uh, this man had sent from Caesarea, which uh, is the area around Philippi and those areas. Then the third section of the book of Acts is chapter 13 to chapter 28. 
chapter 13 through chapter 28. This is where the transition begins from the focus being on Jerusalem to the focus being on Paul and Antioch. Uh, We see the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul uh, in this area. Uh, Antioch is uh, in the Syrian area. And um, uh, let's see here. Catch up with my notes so I don't forget some things here. The first uh, missionary journey was from 48 A.D. to 49 A.D., uh, so it lasted two years. And in these two years, Paul visited uh, the cities in Galatia that were named uh, Poseidon, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So five major cities uh, that he went to, preached in, saw people saved, helped establish a work there, and then he moved on to the next city. And by the way, I think biblical missions ought always to have in mind church planting. Uh, and that's what Paul did. Uh, when he went to these places, he led people to Christ. He taught them in doctrine, stayed with them for a while, and led them to assemble and to begin a church. Um, and uh, these cities uh, had these things. It's after this journey that the leaders of uh, the church in Jerusalem, Peter, John, some of the other folks that were there, uh, they met and decided that the Gentiles did not need to submit to the law of Moses. And if you'll remember, they were trying to say that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and Peter And even Paul had a a confrontation and a conflict about this. And so they finally came up with a decision and said, okay, we don't believe they need to be uh, held under the law of Moses because there is uh, liberty in Christ. Which, by the way, still holds true today. We are not bound under the law of Moses. It is a schoolmaster. It's not that it's not helpful to us or profitable to us. But we're not bound under it. Uh, We are are, uh, free. Uh, we have the grace of God and we have the Word of God and the law of Moses to be our schoolmaster to teach us about the moral laws of God. Uh, then we have the second uh, missionary journey, and it lasts from 50 to 52 A.D. So the first time he went, he went for two years. The second time he went, he went for three years. Um, and he's gone for three years this time. Paul revisits the church in Galatia, uh, the, the churches uh, at uh, Poseidon. Uh, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, And then he also continues on into Macedonia. If you remember the Macedonian call, where he had a vision of a man saying, come over to us. And so he obeys the Macedonian call. He goes over into Macedonia and into Greece. And there he spends a lot of time in three major cities, in the city of Philippi, which was the first place he landed when he got into Macedonia. And uh, the church of, uh, or the book of Philippians is, again, we've talked so often about this, the church at Philippi was the only church that Paul wrote a letter to that did not have to be corrected about something. Fantastic church. And, uh, but he landed there first, and when he came to Macedonia, it was the very first uh, uh, place. That, in fact, when he landed on the shores, he met, uh, if you remember the story of Lydia, uh, the seller of purple, that was the first convert he had in Macedonia. And, uh, and they, uh, out of her household, they began a church there in Philippi. And then uh, in Thessalonica, and then also in Corinth. So, again, in that Greece area, the Macedonian and Greece area, uh, he, again, establishes some churches. That all takes place in his second missionary journey. The third missionary journey uh, is from 53 A.D. to uh, 57 A.D. This one lasts five years. So he goes two years the first time, three years the second time, five years the third time. And uh, three of these years uh, he spends at Ephesus. And uh, he's very... Um, uh, very concerned about the city at Ephesus. And it's an Asian city, um, and he spends three years there before he goes back into Macedonia and Greece, and he visits those churches a second time. 
He does not, in the third missionary journey, revisit the churches he had planted in the first missionary journey. Um, but he does go back and check on the churches in uh, Macedonia and in Greece and in that area. After that third uh, missionary journey, and isn't it interesting, though? Uh, let me just I, this was interesting to me. His first missionary journey was two years. His second one was three. His next one was five. And you can just see the growing burden uh, of the Apostle Paul. As we grow older, we see that our time here on earth is shorter. We become more convinced that we've got to do a work for the Lord, and we've got to do it now. And we can't waste time. When we're younger, we think we have all this time, and we waste more time, and we're not as concerned about time. But I believe that this is a wonderful example of Paul's burden and his fervency growing as he grew in the ministry, uh, having more and more of a burden and a desire for these cities. But soon after his third missionary journey, he purposes to go to Jerusalem. He's told not to go there. He's warned not to go there. He goes anyway. While he's there, he's falsely accused. And what he's accused of is bringing Gentiles into the temple, which by their religious law was, was against the law. Uh, they were not to bring unclean, which is what they considered Gentiles to be. They were not to bring them into the temple. This, of course, was not even true. Paul had not brought Gentiles into the temple. But he's accused of this. Again, the Romans get involved. They spare him from the throng. Um, he gives his defense before the people in the Sanhedrin, and they set out a plot to assassinate him. And the commander of the Roman garrison that, uh, that were protecting Paul sent him to Felix um, and said, we've got to get him out of here. They're going to kill him. They're going to make an assassination attempt on him. So they sent him to Felix, and while he's there, he preaches to Felix. You know, you're in prison. You're standing before your judge, and he says, what are you accused of? Paul says, great, you've given me the opportunity. I'm going to tell you. And so he preaches to Felix. And then he has an opportunity to stand before Festus. By the way, that's where our city got its name from. There was a contest to try to figure out what the new city name should be years ago. And a lady submitted it, said this is a Bible name. And she had gotten it from this story in Acts of the Apostle Paul preaching to Festus. And then later on, he's sent before King Agrippa himself. And he preaches to King Agrippa, and the famous uh, saying where King Agrippa said, Almost thou persuadest me, and probably some of the saddest words of Scripture. To be that close, I think even to be under the conviction, but to say, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Could you imagine if King Agrippa could come back today and have that decision to make over again? Uh, Paul preaches. He wants to take advantage of every opportunity. And uh, then he appeals to Caesar himself, and he goes to Rome. He's in prison there for two years, at least, that we know of. And abruptly, Luke ends his account. We don't hear the end of Paul's life in the book of Acts. Uh, when we last see him, he's imprisoned in Rome. We do know from history that a few years later, he is martyred. Most, uh, most stories and accounts say that he was beheaded. Uh, there's a fairly strong certainty of that. Uh, there is some question that it, they can't prove it definitively, but there's pretty strong evidence that he was beheaded uh, for the cause of Christ in 64 A.D. And uh, I'm sorry, in 67 A.D. Uh, and uh, there were um, several things that took place here that we believe the book was written in the early 60s A.D. because there's a couple things that are not mentioned. Um, the persecution of Nero uh, is not mentioned.
Um, the death of Paul, of course, is not mentioned. The fall of Jerusalem is not mentioned. All of these took place from 64 to 70 A.D. So prior to 64 A.D. would have been when the book probably was completed because there is seemingly no other mention of those events um, taking place. There's no doubt, really, that Luke is the author, uh, the human author, the one that was used to pen these words. Um, from chapter 16 through the end of the book, uh, he changes the pronoun that he uses to we. And so we believe that from chapter 16 through the end of the book, Luke had firsthand eyewitness accounts of what was taking place. Prior to that, he had exposure and was around because he was a, a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. He rubbed elbows with people like Peter and John and some of these guys before they were killed. Um, and uh, he, he meets with them and has access to others that were eyewitness to these accounts. So prior to chapter 16, more than likely he's relaying things that he was told by an eyewitness. From chapter 16 on, uh, it seems to be that he starts using that pronoun we much more often and uh, seems to be like he was the one there at the, at the time these things happened. Uh, the Christ of the book of Acts. Uh, the resurrected Savior is the central theme over and over again throughout the messages that are preached. They say, look, Jesus came, you crucified him, but he rose again. He rose again, and because of the resurrection... Uh, in, and he is the Christ. And this, this is used over and over to convince the Jewish people. Uh, there were four things basically he uses. The Old Testament Scripture, which I already mentioned. Historical witnesses, those that were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Then the apostles' testimony, even to the point of death, that they were not willing to recant their testimony. Um, and then the convincing power and work of the Holy Spirit. He uses all four of these things combined to... Uh, convince uh, the Jewish people and even some Gentiles that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, for sake of time, I'll give you two passages that you can read if you'd like to, and I'll make these notes available if you'd like them. I can get copies of them for you after the service today. Uh, but chapter 2, verses 26 to 34, there's a message that is preached by Peter. And uh, again, he brings those things to light in that message. And then again in chapter 10, verses 34 to 43, you see another message that's given where it uses these things to uh, lay out a, a case for the fact that Christ was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Uh, the theme is the growth of the church, uh, the spreading of the New Testament church in that early uh, first century. Um, the key verses are 1-8, which we've already read. And then let's look at chapter 2 and... Um, Take a quick gander at this one. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42. And they continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine and in breaking of bread, in fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the, what's the next word there? Apostles. Notice it doesn't say by the believers. It was by the apostles. So there were certain signs that were given only to them. And we've got to keep that in mind. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and in breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now these, again, 
uh, were the early years of that Jerusalem church. It wasn't very long, about 10 to 15 years maybe at the max, before we start seeing troubles creep in. And uh, uh, so, uh, but that's the way it was in that early day. Could you imagine having been there in those days? Uh, just everything was great. God was good, and, and people were, uh, you were in well favor in the community, and uh, the message of the gospel was being propagated just exponentially. People were trusting Christ everywhere you went. And uh, boy, that would have been an exciting time. And God intends for that to be the case. And it is usually because of our uh, lack, our quenching, our grieving of the Holy Spirit, or our internal strifes in, in church, or uh, sometimes even external things that frustrate us and cause us to not be as diligent in things as we should. We allow those to kind of, um, kind of curb our joy, our excitement, our zeal. And uh, we need to try to really combat those things. The key chapter is chapter 2. Uh, this is the book that uh, gives us the story of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming and resting on these folks in the upper room, the 120 that were in the upper room. And uh, God takes 120 people of various backgrounds, fairly insignificant in history if you for any other purpose, <clears throat> and because of <clears throat> the Holy Spirit resting upon them and enabling them and empowering them and encouraging them and strengthening them, they literally turn the world upside down to where today Christianity is one of the largest uh, belief systems in the world because 120 ragtag group of people all put together by the Lord Jesus Christ were led and filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to do the work of spreading the gospel to a lost and dying world. By the way, He still works in us today. And we can still do that same work. We need to seek for His power. We need to seek for His leading in our lives. And we need to be sensitive to Him. And a great, great book. I love reading the book of Acts. It's an exciting book. And you can't hardly read it without getting stirred up a little bit. And, uh, but a great book there. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful.